Historic preservation without tradespeople is just theory. That's why today's guest, Matt Hankins, is so important. Matt is a talented and experienced preservation carpenter, someone who is able to restore historic places using traditional methods. We'll talk to Matt about the trades, jobs, and the future of these critical skills in this week's hands-on version of PreserveCast. This week's PreserveCast is sponsored by Wooster Eisenbrand. Wooster Eisenbrand is the premier historic property renovation and restoration firm in the Washington, D.C., Baltimore area. From restoring the Washington Monument in Baltimore, Maryland, to renovating the beautiful stained glass windows of Gilman Hall at Johns Hopkins University, they have a proven track record of quality work. Learn more at weirestoration.com. From Preservation Maryland Studios in the historic podcast district of Baltimore, this is PreserveCast. This is Nick Redding. You're listening to PreserveCast. Today, we are joined in studio by Matt Hankins, who is the shop supervisor for Worcester Eisenbrandt's mill shop and has for over 15 years worked in traditional carpentry. With a BS from the University of Mary Washington's Historic Preservation Program, he also graduated from the prestigious North Bennis Street School. Matt has been working in the field and shop since then, restoring historical elements and building new elements using traditional methods. Matt, it's a pleasure to have you here with us today on PreserveCast pleasure to be here. So we talk about the path to preservation for people, and and it's so exciting to have someone from the trades here, because without the trades, everything that we talk about really just kind of falls apart. You have to have people who actually can do the work with their hands. Did you know from day one that you wanted to get into the trades? What was your path? How did you get into this? Where'd you grow up? Tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got into this line of work. Right. So I grew up out in uh, Carroll County, and um, I was always a big fan of architecture and always a big fan of history. Uh, And then I discovered that I could do both at the same time with historic preservation. So I went to Mary Washington and uh, got my degree. And I really enjoyed all the classes and uh, learning all those different styles and and all that academic stuff. But I, I really wanted to work with my hands and actually restore buildings. And so uh, after I graduated from Mary Wash, I went to the North Ministry School and uh, spent a couple years in that program learning the trades and, and the, how to work wood. And that was kind of when I discovered my niche in, in the field. And so Mary Washington, well, you, you dropped a couple geographic place names for some people outside of the area. Carroll County, so you're in Maryland outside of Baltimore, depending on how right. you define Maryland. Carroll County is either central, northern, western. Right. It, it was different then than it is now. <laughs> it was a little more remote. It's, it's a bedroom community now. I grew up in, in Hampstead, which is on the, uh, the eastern side of, of the county, close to Baltimore County. Okay. And then Mary Washington is down in Fredericksburg, Virginia. Mm-hmm. And then you went up to Bennett Street School, which is in Boston. In Boston, yes. So you spent a couple years in Boston. Um, you know, we, we, in your, your bio, we talk about it being the prestigious North Bennett Street School, which it truly is. Um, and, you know, it's turned out probably some of the best tradespeople in the country working in the field today. 
um, yourself included. And so tell us a little bit about it. Like, what is it like going there? What's the, the coursework like? Is it just like a traditional college? Do you live on a campus? What, what's the experience like there going to this trade school? It's, it's pretty fabulous to be in a, a building. Now it's all in one building full of, of really talented people. They have a, it's the oldest trade school in the country. And they have multiple different programs. They're probably most famous, actually, for their furniture-making program and cabinetry. Uh, but they do uh, piano technology, violin construction, um, jewelry-making, locksmithing. And then they have this preservation carpentry program, which is somewhat unique in that it's, uh, there's not, you get a little bit of the academic, but it's, but it's mostly hands-on working with historic fabric. So uh, it was it's divided into two years. When I was going, uh, the first year we spent a lot of time uh, doing some shop work, learning shop tools and, and shop safety, and we fabricated some projects where we each got to use the different machines. And then the second year was a little more focused on some larger scale projects where we were out in the field working on um, different things, and we each got to tackle uh, a small part of each of those projects so that we felt we could work through from the beginning to end with planning and gathering materials and, and, and taking things apart and putting them back together again. So is it like sort of like different classes during the day or are you kind of just in the shop the whole day and it's kind of broken up into different sections? So there's 12 people in each class per year and you're with those 12 people all the time. So you it's, better like them. Right. It's like working on a job site except every now and then you stop and have some kind of instruction about what you're working on. So it's not like a traditional school environment right. where you're sitting down and watching slides or listening to a lecture. There was a little bit of that for those of us that had gone to a degree program, of which there was, I think, me. Uh, it was it was a little bit repetitive, but for everybody else, getting learning to identify hardware, learning the styles, learning architectural detail names, things, pretty simple stuff like that. But for the most part, it was like being on the job site. And what North Bennett Street allowed all of us to do was to skip that apprenticeship shop sweeping the floor kind of level. When you go to North Bennett Street. It's a, a variety of different people from a variety of different backgrounds and experiences. But when you graduate, just the name North Bennett Street is going to open a door that would have taken a while to get opened from the traditional path of, of joining a company and, and apprenticing and, and learning the trade that way. So it was a nice stepping stone, kind of a skip, if you will. And so I guess that's the next question, which is, how did you, what, what happened after North Bennett? Where was the first job? How long did it take you to land that job? That kind of thing. So I, uh, in, in between the first and second year, there were opportunities for internships and uh, working for different places. There's a, again, there's a lot of connections with North Bennett Street to um, uh, companies specifically around Boston, but up and down the East Coast and around the country have have hired North Bennett Street 
students. And so between the two years, a lot of those companies will offer opportunities for, the, for students to go and work. And that's always a great spot to get into a company. I went to a, a museum in Staten Island, New York, called Historic Richmond Town, which is a museum village, uh, sort of like Sturbridge or Williamsburg. And I worked there for a number of weeks during the summer. And then when I graduated, they offered me a position full time. And so I moved to New York, to Staten Island, and spent five years in a museum village environment, restoring historic buildings and working events and, and doing all the all the things that you do when you work for a small museum, which is generally everything from you know emptying garbage cans to uh, giving tours and, and all the rest. So sort of, an, I guess, almost a non-traditional result of going to a trade school, right? A little bit. Um, we, we did, it was a great opportunity to work on actual museum quality work, which frankly you don't get to do very often. Unless right. you're in a museum. Because most clients don't want to pay for that or aren't interested in that. Right. The, the buildings we were working on, there was no electricity generally in the buildings. There's no running water in the buildings. We are taking them back to what they originally were. Well, that's and a little easier, too. You, don't, you have to bump into all those other things. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And, and well, yes. And then also harder because you're doing things that generally people aren't. They haven't done before, so you're 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 learning to read the buildings and and understand the traditions of that area to build something that's appropriate. And you're when you work for a museum like that, you're sort of setting the benchmark. People are coming there to see how it was done correctly. Right. And so don't screw it up. Right. Yeah. <laughs> right. It's it's so it was it was kind of neat and and interestingly as we. We're talking, so I moved from Maryland to Virginia to Boston to New York, and the building traditions in all of those places are tremendously different. And so each of those places, I had to lean on uh, mentors and people who were from the area to, to show me how a building in Staten Island, New York, was going to be different than one from Piedmont, Virginia. And so what, where do you go from there? So you're there for five years after trade school, then? I was there for five years, um, and then I moved back to Maryland, uh, worked for a company in Annapolis called Traditional Builders. Uh, they, did they still do residential uh, restoration. Um, and so we did uh, historic houses in uh, Baltimore, Annapolis, all the way out in Sharpsburg, uh, Poolsville. We were all over the state doing historic houses, uh, residential restoration. And that was, that was another couple, couple years doing that. Uh, and then uh, the cross-country or cross-state uh, commuting got a little rough. I was driving out to Sharpsburg and everything. Yeah. Uh, and so that's when I latched on to, to Worcester Eisenbrandt. And so why don't you tell us a little bit about Worcester Eisenbrandt? What kind of a firm are they? You've now been there, obviously. I think it's fifteen plus years. Well, I've been at, I've been there about eleven years. Okay, um, and I've been uh, the 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 shop supervisor for that entire time. Okay, um, Worcester Eisenbrand is a commercial restoration company. We do museums and schools and large municipal buildings, and we do pretty much soup to nuts restoration. So we do wood, stone, and some metal restoration. And is that 
unusual in restoration firms? It is. We self-perform a, a large portion of the restoration. Of oh, that's it. unusual. And what you're basically saying there is you don't sub out your work. We don't sub out. Generally speaking. Generally speaking. And because we do the masonry and the wood, and we're not heavily into the metal work, but we do some, uh, because we do all that in-house, the communication is easier. You're not working with multiple different contractors. So we can perform uh, on a building a facade restoration and we can time things out so that the the masonry contractor is not damaging the wood contractor's work and vice versa and it's so every it, it, they're not fighting each other right it's a it's really kind of a, a great situation uh for the building and you're obviously a wood guy you're a carpenter i'm a wood guy i i know but enough you, masonry you to be dangerous right that's right so why don't you tell us about some of the projects you talked about your, you know, you've done all these different um, facade restorations and you guys can really deliver um, in an interesting way. Any buildings that you've worked on in the past that people may be familiar with, things that you're particularly proud of, challenging projects, you know, what are the, what are the, what are the, the dirty dozen or, or half dozen that you've worked on? Well, it, it feels like every project presents some kind of a challenge. Um, uh, we, some of the buildings in, for instance, in Baltimore, we did the Eastern Avenue pumping station, which is down uh, at the foot of uh, President Street. And that was kind of a neat building, those windows. We did the window restoration. They're clad in copper, which is a little unusual. And so that presented a whole bunch of, of preservation challenges for us because it was a little unique. And we'd had a, a little bit of experience doing that, but this was a larger scale um, also in Baltimore, we did the window restoration at uh, at the Rec Pier, the new Sagamore Hotel. Mm-hmm. Right, in Fells Point. Right. Um, we've done a lot of work in D.C., masonry-wise. Uh, the, the, the talent of Worcester Eisenbrandt was involved in the restoration of the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier, which is... Pretty prominent. Pretty, yeah, pretty prestigious. That was kind of an interesting... What, how does that work happen? Do you have to do it at night? So they did it at night, and they had to stop every time that they did uh, changing of, of guard. Does that or, happen as regular at night as it does during the day? I think it does. I don't. I, again, I only saw it from a, from a oh distance. And so they would had to set up, and then they had to leave, and then come back. And uh, it That's was... pretty intense. It was intense, and, and you know, this... this poor stone that they built this monument out of is cleaved right in half and it's just coming apart and so they had to drill down and pin it and then point up the crack so that you couldn't see it and conceivably there's there's a a body in there too yeah down under right so i mean they got to be careful of that you can't well so that the thing about it is and when you when you think about it it's pretty heady people come from around the world to see this and it's hugely important and it may be the only moment in their lives that they get to see it and you don't want to see scaffold in front of it when you come right and so it was really important to to be present and then not present as it needed to be do you think it's one of the most challenging things the shop has worked on that's right up there. Yeah, yeah. that's on. What, yeah. what 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 could vie with that? I, I want to know what this other project. Well, I, again, there's they all are kind they're of they're all tough. Yeah, you ever have easy work? It doesn't <laughs> feel like it. No, there's always a schedule problem or a material availability problem, mm-hmm. or you know, and that's part of the part of the fun of it. And now your shop 
particular in particular, you're focused when you do when you say carpentry, why don't you tell people who are listening what that means? What kind of work are you getting involved in? Right. So we do uh, windows, doors, and trim. We replicate precisely molding profiles, dimensions, uh, even if necessary, wood species, but not all the time. Uh, and we are building exact replicas of those pieces. But at the same time, we are restoring original pieces. So uh, the shop at any one moment can have original windows being restored and new windows being fabricated, even for the same job. And what that helps us, so we have 10,000 square feet of space to, to devote to this. And what this allows us to do is we can replicate something exactly if it's an entire window sash or exactly if it's a little piece of a window sash. Hmm. We don't have to uh, worry about the size of the project in order to do it the proper way. So it's, so it's 10,000 square feet. We have a, a lead stripping area that's separate from the rest of and the so shop. And so your shop oversees the lead piece too. We do the lead piece because it of touches the, wood, right? Of the components that come to us. But then you don't do the painting, I guess. You have painters. No, we have so so we self perform from the moment it comes off the building to the moment. And we you walk oversee away. the painters too, right? Because it touches wood. Correct. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so we so we remove the paint. We do the restoration or replication. Uh, we we glaze windows and then we have a, a spray booth and, and painters and we can apply all kinds of different finishes. So we can go, it comes in one end and goes out the other end as a, as a finished piece all the way through. We're not farming out, we're not subbing out any of that. It's really work. unique. It is. And you're primarily focused on the Baltimore, Washington region. Have you branched out at all? Any more of those long trips? They sending you out to Sharpsburg anytime? No. Well, we've we've done some. We've got some uh, work in Charlottesville, uh, Virginia. That's pretty far. Uh, the before I was there, they did a lot of restoration work at the Falling Water property. Uh, we've done work in Phoenix, Arizona. We've done work out in the Chicago area. So wow. we have done work all far and wide, because of what we do and because of the, the really the luxury of having that shop space. Being within relative driving distance of the shop space helps us do... Makes it a lot easier. Yeah, do, do certain projects a lot a lot better. Well, speaking of projects, anything exciting that you're working on right now? What, I mean, what, what's in the shop at this moment? Well, so speaking of challenging, <laughs> yeah. uh, we are working on the Maryland School for the Blind up on off of Taylor Avenue in Baltimore mm -hmm. City. And we are replicating 100 and, about 170 window openings for that project. Now that sounds like a lot to a layman. It is, is that, a lot. Is that a lot to a professional? It is a lot. So we're, Is that sort of like vying with the most replications you would have ever done? Yeah, that's about as big as we've done. It's a we, lot. We did the, the restoration of the window. We, we do a lot of large-scale restoration projects. Sure. So the rec pier. But that's different that, than that was building big, from scratch. Right. We're building these things from rough material. And I guess this client made the decision to build in wood? So the client or, made the decision, as I understand it, yeah. based on uh, a concern. This is a school building, and there was a concern about lead-based paint. Okay. And so the idea was to remove the windows and replace them. But they were limited. Originally, they wanted to just go with some relatively off-the-shelf custom 
replica windows, replacement windows. But those didn't meet the historic requirement of replication. We have to right. replicate these things down to the molding profiles and the wow. dimensions and the glass sizes. So these are exact replicas of the windows that we took out. The joinery is traditional now joinery. what happened to all those? Uh, most of them are gone. We have a handful in our shop, and there's a handful that the school will be getting back in order to have for Mm-hmm. historic pos- pros- installing any in your garage or anything no no, no okay. i've got i don't need any <laughs> any more windows thank you uh, <laughs> he says as he rolls his eyes yes. you have a few on hand i've got a couple okay yep uh so these are uh they're fabricated out of sapili uh which is a what is that is that's a, a tropical hardwood okay so very so, dense so yeah rot resistant bug resistant uh tempered glass and they, uh, they're, they're actually now replicated as single hung. The upper sash will be fixed. So how long does it take you to replicate 170-odd windows? This is going to... We started these uh, early January, and we expect to be finished in mid to late fall. And that's like straight work. This is 40 hours a week people working on these, or yeah, no? Pretty much. I mean, uh, wow. with... A, with this is not the only project that we're sure. working on. And so we don't have the luxury of just doing it straight through. So other things are happening as well. But yes, th- this is as soon as we finish a batch, which is anywhere from 25 to 50 window openings, we are then starting on the next batch. It, it's, again, 10,000 square feet sounds like a lot until you have 40 window. It fills up pretty quick. Right. So that's 80 sash and 40 frames. And imagine the tradespeople who serve under you are going to be, they're pretty much done with these once they're, are they getting sick of it at this point? I mean, that's a, that's a lot of Maybe. monotony. I'm, I'm tired of. of seeing them a little bit, but uh, it's, you know, these guys like doing this work. And so they're, and, and so they're, they're working with their, again, tradespeople like working with their hands, like making things. Well, maybe that's a good segue in the sense that, um, for people who are interested in the trades, mm-hmm. um, what does your trade shop look like? What are, who are the kind of people who are doing this work? And if someone's interested in this kind of work, any advice on what they might do and, and how they might get into it? So my group is kind of a varied assortment of characters. Uh, they've come from all different backgrounds. We get uh, art students from MICA. We get... Uh, you know, guys that have that have come through different trades. You know, our masons are are generally coming through the, just the traditional mason trades, and then kind of picking up the the nuances of historic work. Um, I have a couple guys that have worked for a long time in traditional uh, building, as such as I have. Uh, I have a furniture maker working in my shop at the moment. Uh, doing cabinetry? No, he's building windows and doors. Windows. Yeah, no, he's he's. Once I find the talent, it, uh, I can flip him over, and he's he's cranking out windows and doors. Yeah. Wow. Um, so a lot of them come just traditionally through the trades. They have parents who were in the trades, and they started working at a young age, or or um, a, a lot like me, who who kind of maybe Picked started it. on a different path and then yeah. and then quickly realized that they wanted to, to do yeah. work with their hands. So if people want to get into it, though, so maybe someone doesn't have that background, but they love the idea of it. What would you recommend to someone? So I, I took the I took the academic route, which is 
It was nice. Like I said, it, it, it's a stepping stone. It was a quick stepping stone. North Bennett Street got opened a lot of doors. Mm -hmm. But it was, I mean, there's cost associated with that. There's There was a commitment to move to Boston. Right. That's a lot to ask of a lot of people. You know, there's a, there's, this is a growing field, this historic preservation, especially in the urban areas. There's mm -hmm. a lot of, I think, when I was first starting in it, it was a little bit more of a niche. You know, you had this old house, an old house journal, but right. there wasn't a lot of historic well, preservation. Well, as more people move back into urban areas and repopulating areas, right. somebody's got to fix all the stuff. Exactly. And yeah. there's an interest in it. Yeah. And there's... Uh, say what you will about the internet but one thing it's done for better or for worse and accurately and inaccurately it is it is uh, educated the general public a little bit they have more access to to see things and sure and so they can see that uh, yeah i know, ham handedly made my way through rehabbing windows personally right uh, and thank and, you youtube <laughs> exactly <Yeah. laughs> people see you know see this stuff and they and they like the historic work and they like what it looks like and so they the, there's a lot more opportunity to to do that and so really the the probably the still the best way to get into the trades is to find somebody who's doing it and get hired and learn at the feet of whoever you can and find. And then when you say that, like let's say a Worcester Eisenbrandt, I show up, I have no background, well, I guess I have some background in preservation, but I, but like let's say I have no background in preservation um, or certainly no background in hands-on preservation. Is a Worcester Eisenbrandt going to hire someone like me if I'm willing to learn? We do. We hire really? We hire. And you get hired you, as you a... You start as a laborer. Okay. Okay, and you... But... You have to show the initiative. Right. That's really, I mean, Worcester Eisenbrandt at any one moment can have 100 plus people working in the field for them. So you can get lost in the shuffle if you want to. And you can just kind of show up every day and do your thing. And, and But if you are asking questions and you're working hard and you're trying to learn things, uh, the people at Worcester Eisenbrand are going to pick up on that. People at any company are going to pick up on that. If you want to learn this and you're putting in some time and mm -hmm. uh, there's there's courses you can go take and you know there's ways that you can grow your knowledge and any good company, any good contractor that. is seeing that and says, this is somebody that I need to hold on to. So you can think of laborers that have come in that way who sure, now are... Sure, yeah. They become masons and, you know, you, you start as a laborer and you become a tender and you're, and you're, you know, helping mix mortars and learning that kind of thing. And you're asking questions and you're, you're practicing and, and that's how you get, that's how you get this knowledge. Yeah. I mean, you, you're just, you can cheat, if you will, and go to a school and have somebody show it to you. But even then... If you go and you don't have that passion for it and you don't show that passion right. for it, uh, you're, you're just only going to get so far. So I guess the big takeaway is if you have a passion for it, find a firm that's doing it, talk to them and get involved in the ground floor if you can and work your way up. Sure. And, and that's it's still, it seems like an easy thing to say in sort of a pat answer, oh, work your way up and show initiative. But in the trades, I guess perhaps because they are so traditional in a sense, that sort of traditional concept still works there. You're just, you still do work your way up. Right. You're you just know? not going to, even even going to a two-year preservation program, you're just not going to learn everything you need to know. Right. And you, and you need to have that, that background, that training 
that learn on the job and slowly gain hand skills, gain knowledge, and get to a point where you're, you're a crafts person. So that said, are you worried about the future of the trades? I am a little bit. There's, there's, we've got a lot, a lot of young people that, that knock on our door looking to work. Specific to this area, I wish that we had more citizens from, from this area. We're getting a lot of people coming from different places. And I, and I, but you're talking I'm, about Baltimore City. I'm thinking that Bal- yeah, Baltimore City would be great to have residents of Baltimore City be more involved. we got so many buildings in this town. And so many people who need jobs. Right. And, and people, you got the buildings, you, you, you got the need for the jobs. Yeah. Even in D.C., there's a little less of a population there that's, that's probably headed towards the trades now than yeah. there used to be. I worry, I worry in general like a lot of people who work with their hands. Right. That, and that, that's not just the traditional trades. I mean, you hear about that just from sort of general contractors. Exactly. That people they just don't can't get... make things as much. Yeah. There's a big movement, the big maker movement, but yeah. really the people generally, young people don't make things as much as they used to. I'm a model train guy. I build models. I grew up building models. So you build big stuff at work and then you come home and build little right. stuff. Right. <laughs> and so many people of my age and older built models. That was something that you did. You made stuff. And nowadays, my kids build it on Minecraft, right? And yeah. they just point and click and drop little boxes together. Well, now, no, so I, even the children of the craftsmen. Well, so I have <laughs> I have drugged them down into the shop and they make. They they That's make cool. things in my shop. And I just think that that is something we're in danger of losing is the manual making. Mm-hmm. And so that's why I, I mean, I enjoy that maker movement and uh, people making, you know, swords whatever and it is, costumes or whatever. Right. I think that's super valuable. Um, and there, and, and the young people that come to Worcester Eisenbrandt looking for work, you can feel that in them. You know, they've, they've done something else. They got a degree in such and such or what have you. And now they've decided, you know, I really want to make something. I want to stand back at the end of my day, my eight-hour day, and say, well, I've, I haven't just moved this little pile of paper over to this little pile of paper. I've actually made these things. Uh, we, have a, we have a relatively young guy in our shop now who uh, served in the Peace Corps and and has been doing some really great stuff. And he came to us, and he had, again, some limited experience in in working with his hands and working with wood. And now he's participating actively in making window sash. He's cutting mortises, and he's, you know, running pieces through machines, and he's building frames, and he's doing these things that when he started with us, you know, six weeks ago, that wasn't something that he was capable of doing. Yeah, it's transformative work. Right. And he can stand back, you know, for years now, he can drive down Taylor Avenue and say, see those windows? (laughs) Right. And if he did his job right, they'll still be together. They will definitely still be together. (laughs) (laughs) Well, maybe that's a good place to to leave that conversation and just to say that we need to make things. You know, maybe there's something to that. Yes. So before we depart completely, we ask the most difficult question of any preservationist favorite historic place or building. You've mentioned a lot just in this interview. <laughs> and well, so someone is going to be upset 
Right. Depending my, on what you don't say. My problem is I'm like uh, uh, one of my one of my former colleagues used to used to hold his hand up like he was holding a ball and say, look at the ball, look at the ball. Whoop. And then he'd throw it and then look at the ball. I'm all over the map. Every time I drive through, particularly this city, I see something that fascinates me. Uh, so maybe the latest thing to fascinate so you. The, How about that? So the latest, we'll let you out. Right. And this will this is going to be way out there. But I, recently I, I discovered there was a, a really neat building on the corner of Fremont and Lafayette. It's a house that's been converted into a bunch of apartments. But it obviously was a mansion at one point or another. And so I'm slowly digging through the weeds trying to figure out what this house was and who built it and what happened, why is it there. Uh, there's just so many of those kind of houses uh, that I find in this town, buildings and, and houses and just driving around the town or driving around the state and seeing a historic house and just wondering, wonder what happened there. Yeah. That just that that's what really drives me is that discovery and figuring out the history and then trying to be part of keeping it up. Yeah. Well in Maryland there's no end to that. So there is good place to live. It definitely. Well Matt, it's been a pleasure to have you here today. So great to hear about your work and thanks for all the good work that you're doing out there. Um, it's it's good to know people like you are on on the front lines keeping things together. Well, thank you for having me. You don't need to open a history book to find us. Available online from iTunes and the Google Play Store, as well as our website, presmd.org. From Preservation Maryland Studios in the historic podcast district of Baltimore, this is PreserveCast. This podcast was developed under a grant from the National Center for Preservation Technology and Training, a unit of the National Park Service, and in partnership with the Anacostia Trails Heritage Area. Its contents are the sole responsibility of Preservation Maryland and do not necessarily represent the official position or policies of the National Park Service or the National Center for Preservation Technology and Training. Our website is made possible by the Historic Preservation Education Foundation. This week's podcast was produced and engineered by Rich Grouser. Our executive producer is Aaron Markovich. Our theme music is performed by the band Pretty Gritty. And most importantly, thank you for listening and preserving. 